0: Junior Church. Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. We're in the book of Galatians in chapter 3 this morning. Today we'll be looking at verses 19 through 25. As you turn there in Galatians, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in our series on Galatians chapter 3 has been confronting false teachers and comforting the Galatian believers. The false teachers wanted to make Christianity not about faith alone, sola fide, but about works on top of faith. And this false gospel needed to be exposed. And after all the work Paul has done leading up to verse 19, Uh, we come to probably one of the main questions that Paul's opponents were asking. If Paul keeps saying we don't need the law to be right with God, uh, the law was added later, you can be right with God by faith, then why did God give us the law? That's the question that will be addressed in verses 19 through 25. Why did God give the law? What's with all these rules? What's the point? We'll find out in our text this morning. Before I read Galatians 3, 19-25, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us life and breath this morning. Your Word tells us, let everything that has breath... Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So since we have breath, help us praise you this morning. Help us praise you this afternoon. Prepare us to praise you this evening. And if we receive the gift of another day tomorrow... May we receive it with joy and gladness, and may we praise you again. Lord, you know every heart right now that can hear my voice praying. You know what that heart needs so that they would be able to praise you. So as we continue in the worship service in this time now of opening your word, will you, Lord, speak to our hearts, open our eyes, open closed hearts, open runaway minds, give life where there is death and hope and light where there is darkness. Thank you that all week you have prepared a message for us because you love your children. To help us receive your words now with gladness. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Galatians chapter 3, I'll be reading verses 19 through 25, and then we'll find out the answer to this perplexing question. Let's hear the word of our loving and law-giving God. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary? So the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We'll stop there in our reading this morning. Why did God give us the law? If we're not to become right with God by obeying the law, if it is just by faith alone, why did God give us the law? Why did he give us so many laws? Some of you don't like any laws, let alone hundreds and hundreds of laws that we find in God's Word. That is a very important question. Well, let's begin by looking at the last line of our text this morning. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So for the Apostle Paul, the times have changed. There used to be, in the life of God's people, a guardian. But now, faith has come, and Paul has already explained that the person and work of Jesus Christ, which makes faith possible, and effective, now that Jesus has done his work in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into glory, now that faith has come, we're no longer under this guardian. That's what he says, we are no longer under a guardian. The word guardian there is basically the word for tutor or schoolmaster. It's where we get the word pedagogy from. At East Strasburg University, when I was studying to be a teacher, if you didn't know, I was a health and phys ed major before making the natural progression from gym teacher to pastor. (laughs) A number of our classes were called pedagogy one, pedagogy two, pedagogy three. It was training a teacher to teach others in the art and practice of teaching pedagogy. Paul is using the word pedagogy. In Greek, he's saying that the law functioned as a pedagogue, a teacher, a tutor, a schoolmaster. And this term that Paul uses was actually a job in the first century that certain people had. In the first century, only the most upper class of families could afford this, but a boy growing up in a wealthy upper class family would have a life tutor assigned to them until they reached adulthood. And this life tutor was a servant of the family. And this tutor, this pedagogy, this, this taskmaster would watch the boy's life and moral behavior and remind them, these are the laws of the house, and you're not allowed out of the house unless I give you permission. And hey, parents, guess what the boy just did again? The tutor would watch the boy's life, but not forever this pedagogy would be in the boy's life until they reached adulthood and until the boy would become a man of his own house. So that's what the word meant when Paul used it. Paul is saying that the guardian uh, doesn't become useless, but it served its task. It has completed its task. The guardian gets you safely to adulthood. And Paul's saying that the law of God functioned like a guardian like that, like a tutor. Look at verse 24 now. What was the guardian? So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came. So in Abraham, you have faith which relates you to God and justifies you in God's sight. It opens up your relationship with our Creator God. And then hundreds of years later, Moses comes along and God gives us the formal law through Moses. And Paul is saying that from the time of Moses to Christ, we needed the law as a tutor, as a teacher, as a guardian. And its primary role was for that season as a guardian. Not to make sure that we all grow up to age 18, but rather, now look at verse 24, the whole verse. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, but why? In order that we might be justified by faith. The goal of the law was to get people saved, to get people justified, to help them understand how they could be made right with God. The law served the doctrine of sola fide. The law was supposed to do in the hearts and minds of every person who followed our Lord, it was supposed to expose in their hearts their need to be justified by faith alone. That's what the law was going to do. So God saw fit to give us his law so that people might be justified by faith. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that uh, confusing? If uh, you have a lot of rules in your house, or if you have a lot of rules for your kids, or if you're a teenager and your parents have a lot of rules for you, you don't usually think all those rules are so that I would just love my parents by faith. It's not our natural human inclination to laws. But when God wanted the world to know that being right in his sight was not by laws, but by faith, he gave us laws. Let me say that again. Isn't that interesting? When God wanted the world to know that being right in his sight was not by laws, but by faith alone, he decided, as verse 24 tells us, to give us laws. And at first glance, that seems really strange. But in a few minutes later in the sermon, we're going to consider it with a few very practical examples that will make sense of all this. Before getting to that point, though, let's see the rest of the context of our verses. Verse 24 and 25 we looked at. They've shown us this. The law was our guardian until Christ came so that people would be justified by faith. So the law was our guardian until Christ came so that we would know we needed to be justified by faith. Well, now let's look back at verses 19 and 20. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, that's saying what we already saw in verse 24. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So let's stop here for a minute. If Paul just wants to talk about the law being a guardian, why is he talking about these intermediaries and angels? What is Paul doing? Two questions for us about verses 19 and 20. The first question is, why does Paul mention intermediaries? And the second question is, why was the law added because of transgressions? We really want to understand that question. Number one, an intermediary. Verse 20, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. And the end of verse 19, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Let's talk about that for a little bit. How many of you have ever done mediation between two groups of people? You've had to stand between two people and mediate. Uh, An argument, a debate, something in a courtroom. Uh, They used to teach us being mediators in like middle school and high school. If you see two kids fighting, get in between and help them talk it out. I don't know how well that ever worked, but that's the role of a mediator. A mediator is a go-between. The word intermediary means mediator. Let me give you an example. So uh, we just finished our membership class this morning and prospective members are filling out their membership applications. And this is a great thing. Uh, pray for those prospective members, by the way. Church, will you pray for all of our prospective members, all of the people who came through that membership class and are considering applying for membership at Cornerstone Church of Skibec? Pray for them that God would bless them in this season of life that God would make membership clear for them and for us, that we would all be encouraged by the upcoming membership interviews and then adding many to membership, including the baptisms that will be taking place before membership for some of them. Pray that God would help us all receive members and membership as a gift. Pray for that. But about those membership applications... Uh, some of the members, the prospective members, have already handed me their membership application. They gave it right to me, and I put it in my office where we keep it. Uh, there were no mediators between that person and me. Some of them put it in the office shuttle, and then I found it in the office shuttle on Monday, and I picked it up, and I took it into my office, one mediator between me. And then some people put it in the office shuttle, and someone else who works in the office found it and then gave it to me, so there were two mediators between that member in their application, and getting it to my office. It's a simple illustration, but in one case, there's no mediators. In one case, one. In one case, two mediators. Paul is saying in verses 19 and 20 that the law, which was given through Moses, had two mediators, angels and an intermediary. Angels and an intermediary, right? That's what Paul is saying. In other words, what Paul is doing is saying, When you think about the promise given to Abraham and you compare it with the law given to the people through Moses and angels, let's compare and contrast. One was given indirectly through two mediators and one was given directly. And you're wondering, well, why is that so important? I've studied a lot this week, this passage, and I have come to realize that this is one of the hardest verses to understand in the Bible. All right? All right. Every once in a while, you open your Bible, and you're reading, and you go, I just don't know. And that is okay. So let me quote one of my favorite pastors over the years, someone I've read a lot, uh, John Piper, a pastor. Maybe some of you have read and heard of him. He was preaching on this passage in 1983, and here's what he said. Here's what he said from his pulpit. But first, a brief comment about the last half of verse 19 and verse 20. It says the law was ordained by angels through an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. He was reading from an older version in 1983. Here's what he said after that. I am not going to deal with this because I don't know what it means. (laughs) I cannot figure out how the two halves of verse 20 relate to each other. I would be happy for anyone to give me insight here. That's what he said in a sermon. And I I read that, and here's why. it's okay to be humble before God's Word. God is the creator of the universe. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He designed you for glorious deeds and faith, and he created the heavens, and the sun runs its course in the sky every day to glorify our creator. Of course, it's going to be a little bit difficult sometimes to understand him, Of course, that's good theology to say that some parts of the Bible are just really hard to understand. And here is my reminder for you, which I make sure I say a few times a year from this pulpit. This is why you need to test everything I and any other pastor up here preaching says with God's word. Every single thing we say, if it does not line up with God's revealed word, then you believe this and not me. Agreed? That's because God's Word is the final authority for our life and faith, not any elder here. And I appreciate John Piper's honesty. Sometimes no matter how much we study, we can't figure out exactly what God is trying to get at in the text. Well, Piper was preaching 40 years ago and there's been much updated debate about this verse. I studied the passage a lot this week, felt like I was wrestling with it, and and I did find one explanation which I think makes the most sense of verses 19 and 20. In Philip Ryken's commentary on Galatians, he makes the following suggestion. So let's look back at verses 19 and 20. Let me read it again one more time, verses 19 and 20, and I'll give you what I think is the best explanation of what Paul is trying to do. Why then the law it was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and here it is, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So what Ryken thinks Paul was doing is he thinks that the enemies of Paul, the opponents of Paul, who we call the Judaizers, were probably bringing up the fact that angels were there, and Moses was there when the law was given. They were using that as a way to add credibility to their false gospel, that you can't just have faith, you need the law to. Look at how impressive the law was. Angels, God's glory around the mountain, Moses. I mean, look at what God was doing. So Paul is probably thinking, I need a response to that. And so he says, you know, when the law was given, it it came by way of angels and an intermediary. It didn't even come directly to the people. There was a problem already in the people of God, a distance between God and man, which required not one but two mediators between God and his people when they gave the law. So from God to the people, the law had two handoffs, God, angels, Moses, people. Why? Why? Because of their sinfulness. Because their sin kept them separated from a holy God. Sin means we need a mediator between us and God. So does that make the law when it was given better than the promise which came directly to Abraham? Paul was probably saying no, just the opposite. The law had two handoffs. God, angels, Moses, people. The promise had no handoffs. Straight from God to Abraham And his offspring, which eventually pointed to Jesus Christ. And since Paul is saying the covenant with Abraham was actually made between God and his offspring, Jesus, Paul reminds them that God is one, even though it was a mediated situation. Because God as Father, God as Son, and God as Holy Spirit is one God in three persons. God is one. I think that's the best explanation I found for verses 19 and 20. The promise is better than the law because the law had two mediators because of sin. And the promise came straight to sinners like Abraham and like you and me. So that's question number one. Why does Paul mention intermediaries? Question number two is probably a lot more important for us. Why was the law added because of transgressions? Look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions transgressions. Transgressions are sins. Why did God give the law? Because the world was full of sin. The world was a mess. There was injustice everywhere. There was chaos everywhere. There was brokenness and pain and suffering everywhere. And the law, as Paul has already said, can't bring life. Verse 21. Look at verse 21 now. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So the law cannot bring life. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Here's the answer. Why the law? The law cannot bring life. The law cannot make you right with God because we've all sinned. But the law can expose sins. The law can expose sins. How many of you have ever played a team sport? All right. Every once in a while, if you're playing a team sport, the referee will blow the whistle and say, that's a foul. And everyone will go, what do you mean that was a foul? And someone will inevitably say, I didn't even know that was a rule. Come on. You didn't know that tackling someone in basketball was a a foul. Uh, Every once in a while, there's a rule. I remember I I, uh, jumped across the midcourt line in a game of basketball, caught the ball in midair, landed in the front court, and uh, the referee said, that's that's, uh, over and back, or whatever the rule was called back in the 80s when it happened. I was furious because I did not think that that was a rule. But now I know. I was exposed to the rule. Laws expose us to the rules. Laws expose our hearts to our need for a Savior. Throughout history, many theologians have agreed on three uses of the law. If you take notes, these are really helpful. Three uses of the law. What does the law do? God's law three things. First, it's a mirror, a mirror. Second, it's a restraint, and third, it's a guide. First, it's a mirror reflecting God's holiness and our sinfulness. We look into the law and we realize we're sinners. Well, second, it's a restraint. God's law helps people know not what to do and keeps civil society livable. If we didn't have any laws, it would be anarchy and chaos, and a lot more people would be harmed. So it's a restraint. And the third thing the law functions as, for God's people, it's a guide. It's a guide to help us know how we can live lives that please God. So why was the law given? It's a mirror, it's a restraint, it's a guide. These themes are all throughout Scripture, as the authors of Scripture tell us those three facets of the law. Well, here in Galatians 3, I believe Paul has in mind number one and number two, the mirror and the restraint uses of the law. A mirror lets you know what you look like. We probably, almost all of us, looked into the mirror this morning before we came to church. You know what you look like. We should look into God's law that says do not envy, do not boast, do not covet what your neighbor has, do not be easily angered, do not lust, do not steal, do not lie. We should look at that and not go, I'm perfect. We should look at God's law and say, I need a Savior. I am a sinner. The law is a mirror. It exposes sins. Wow, I need a Savior. That is what Paul's saying. The law was given because of sins, because of transgressions, to help us all realize we're law breakers. Look at verse 24. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. The law shows us that we failed the law, so we need a Savior to place our faith in. That is the purpose of the law. Well, the law also functions as a restraint to keep us safe from harm, to keep civil society livable instead of a place of anarchy. And when the laws are good, everyone is safer. Let's have a little bit of fun thinking about laws. Why, do any, why does anyone put laws into place in a home, in a city, in a nation? Why does God give us laws? Well, there, there's a lot of examples of good laws. How many of you have a dog? Lots of dog owners here. Lots of dog owners. Okay. Do you let your dogs outside without a leash or a fence? Some of you maybe do. But probably most of you don't. Why not? They might run away. They might bite a matchet kid. Three of us have been bitten by dogs, uh, at least three of us. A loving owner puts a fence around the yard for their dog so that their dog can be free and safe. Right? A loving owner puts a fence or a guard around the property for the dog so that the dog can live a life of freedom and safety and for the safety of the neighborhood. Teenagers, a lot of you are wrestling with the laws that your parents have in your homes. Uh, Think about it this way. Think of that like a protective fence put in place by your parents to lovingly try their best to keep you free and safe. And if that illustration doesn't help, particularly if uh, if you're a teenager, uh, a lot of you have phones. Do you lock your phone or do you leave your phone unlocked so that your friends can play around with it and mess around with it? Most of you lock your phones. You're putting a fence around your phone so that everyone can be free and safe. Let's think about driving laws for a few minutes. Speed limits keep the roads presumably safe. Traffic lights keep intersections safe license processes keep eight-year-olds from driving and then there's the law about driving in the left lane you can only use the left lane to pass and then you have to get back in the right lane if you're out for a leisurely stroll please use the right lane that is a good law it doesn't seem to be working (laughs) but the other laws seem to be doing a reasonable job think about cars they're dangerous right We have 330 million people in the United States, which is actually 120 million households, and there are 6 million car accidents per year. If my household is average, we make about three trips a day. So in an average year... That's 360 million trips per day in America, 120 million households, three trips per day, times 365. That means in America there are 131 billion car trips a year. And there's only six million car accidents. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? That's an incredibly small number. As tragic as a car accident is, there are laws. God's laws keep civil society livable. They put up safety barriers so that people can be free and safe. Laws restrain and keep society safe. A few weeks ago, I made a suggestion. What if we thought about this? What if we thought about what it would be like to live in a land where you could steal? You could lie in court. You could murder a world without any of those laws. Do not steal, do not lie in court, do not murder, would be horrible. It would be unlivable. So the second use of God's law is a restraint on evil in society, starting with God's law given to God's people. And as they became a nation that obeyed those laws, they would be a land of life and integrity and honesty and safety and protection and care for neighbor and care for others that the whole world would look at and go, I want to be a part of that people. Who is their God? Tell me about him. And so today, the church is to function that way. We are to obey God and live lives of holiness For his glory so that the world, which has less and less laws that they care about, will see the people of God living differently. The law serves as a mirror and also a restraint. But the law doesn't make us good, like the Judaizers were arguing. You have to do all the law to be right with God. The law shows we're bad. And the law had a function for a special season in redemptive history. So God's law is good. Amen? God's laws are good for our awareness of our sin, for our freedom, and for our safety. Well, before I move on to verse 22 we'll look at in a few minutes, let's stop for a minute and think about this in light of what has just happened in our country on Friday. When the Supreme Court on Friday overturned uh, Roe v.ersus Wade and then the other case about abortion. Roe versus Wade in 1973 basically made the law in every state abortion is legal. When the law changes, what happens? Because now, as of Friday, in I think 11 states, I think there's a debate over which ones are, abortion is now illegal in a number of states. What happens when the laws change? Uh, So first, I want to give you my pastoral response, a letter I'll be sending out to the whole church uh, this week in light of that. And then I want to show how this is a perfect example to think about what Paul is saying, the use of laws in a society. So first, my pastoral reaction to Friday's news. Dear church family, praise the Lord for his goodness, justice, and love. Plead with the Lord for wisdom, mercy, and patience, and more justice in the days to come. Psalm 139, verse 13 to 16, reads as follows. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So before we were conceived, we were lovingly designed. Our Lord gave us life, and he gave no one else permission to end our life. So this weekend is bittersweet for God's people. Praise the Lord for a historic and major move in our country towards treating every single human being with the dignity that they are created with and lament that over 63 million children have died from abortion over the past 49 years. One would have been too many. Our Lord has Watch, 63 million children he had already made die. So we lament with our Lord. And something I wasn't sure would ever happen in my lifetime, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade on Friday, June 24th. While this was an incredible answer to billions of prayers for nearly the last half century, this now means that abortion laws will shift from a national debate to a unique debate in each of the 50 states. So for us, living in Pennsylvania, things might get much more complicated. You may find yourself discussing this with family, friends, neighbors, strangers, or people at work and school. God may also choose some of us to play a particularly difficult role in how Pennsylvania responds as a state. It may cost us something to stand for the sanctity of life in our state. We will need God's love and God's truth. God's truth is that every human being is made in the image of God. Every life is as valuable as every other human life. No group of humans should ever be treated as less worthy of the right to live. God wonderfully and fearfully made everyone, so may the Lord move in our land to protect every unborn life with the same protections the rest of us have. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves and to give our voice to the voiceless. So unborn children deserve our love and our voices. And God's truth is that there is forgiveness for the taking of life. So may many who have participated in abortion find forgiveness and healing in Christ Jesus. God's love is also for all, so we must ask Him to work in every heart, wherever they stand on this issue. Only He can bring light into the dark. Prayer will be an enormous tool for us going forwards. Christians, will be watched closely for how we respond. Pray for the local pro-life pregnancy centers, that God would give them endurance at this time. Thank God for our church partnership with Amnion in Norristown, and pray for them specifically at this time. Pastor Ari and I were there a few weeks ago, and we offered assistance, financial and physical assistance, if they happen to be vandalized in the coming weeks as a result of this, like some pregnancy centers have been. Pray for all pregnancy, all pregnant mothers in our area who have or are currently considering abortion. The gospel-believing churches would be a place of care, love, resources, and discipleship. Pray for our elected officials that God would silence all voices of injustice and elevate all voices that affirm the dignity of every human life. I'm almost done, don't worry. In response to the ruling, we should expect an increase in tension and anger in our land. Pray that God would spare us much of that and that no Christian would give in to anger or violence. We do not return hate for hate or harm for harm or mockery for mockery. Jesus is Lord and he is building his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Our Lord never lets injustice go on forever. And Christ's timeline for this issue is according to his wisdom, not ours. So may our Lord bring an end to abortion in our land for the good of all of our neighbors and for his glory. For today, praise the Lord and trust the Lord. For tomorrow, do more of the same. And consider praying on the first Wednesday of July specifically for this issue. If you can join us for our July, first Wednesday of the month concert of prayer, at 645 we'll be meeting uh, for pizza and 715 we'll be praying in light of this issue for our land, for our church, for God's glory, in, in light of the sanctity of human life. On the first Wednesday of July, we have a special prayer meeting for that. So church, praise the Lord, lament with the Lord, and may this church be a house of prayer. May all glory be to Christ. That will be the all-church letter I'll be sending out this week, essentially. So that's a summary of my response to this issue. It relates to laws. It's so interesting that all week I was preparing, what is the purpose of a law? What do laws do? And then God dropped that on our earth on Friday. Well, secondly and briefly, we're going to look at why I think this issue of laws about abortion is a particularly helpful one to observe the power of laws in a land. Laws act as what? Mirrors and restraints, don't they? When slavery was legal, many churches kept their mouths shut. Many Christians thought it was okay to own people. But when slavery was made illegal, when the laws changed, you can no longer treat a person as property. And now in our land, All people are treated with dignity. Now, in some places, the laws are changing to include a group of people who was previously excluded from equal treatment. When that happened with slavery, the consciences of many Americans woke up. It acted as a mirror and a restraint. Some Americans said, wow, I was owning a person. I was treating someone as property. And over decades, Christians eventually gave up their understanding that slavery was okay. The consciences of many woke up when the laws changed. Now, some Americans rejoiced when slavery was abolished, but others did not. But now look at us. In our country, every post-born person is treated as equal And God uses laws in a country to do that. He uses it as a mirror and a restraint. But here we are again at another crossroads. There are states where now, after 49 years, all lives matter. And there are states like Pennsylvania where only post-born lives matter. But the laws are changing, and this will shape minds when it comes to something like abortion. Some churches have been keeping their mouths shut. Many Christians thought it was okay to have an abortion, But once states make it illegal, those laws will act as mirrors and restraints. And may our Lord bring us to a place in our lifetime when abortion is only in the history books and where every human life is treated equally. Laws function this way. God gave the law, do not lie in court against your neighbors so that the justice system could be fair and treat everyone equally. You cannot show favoritism to the rich against the poor or to the poor against the rich, to this person against that person. You must have a just legal system. Laws do that. They awake the conscience and they restrain evil in a land. And so may the Lord do that with laws about abortion going forward. But we have to remember Paul's argument to the Judaizers. Laws don't make us good. The laws show that we're bad. And the law had a special function for a special season in redemption history. Now look at verse 22. We finally made it to verse 22 at the end of our message here. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. If you believe in Jesus, if you look at God's law and realize, I'm a sinner, ah, I've sinned, I need a Savior. If you believe in Jesus, you get the promise of God. The law shows us our need for a Savior. The law was a guardian until Christ came so that people would be justified by faith. So how can we apply this? There's three ways to apply what Paul is teaching. Why did God give the law? It's a mirror. It's a restraint. Okay, it doesn't justify you before God. Why? How can we respond? Briefly, three ways, church. Number one, love God's law. Number one, love God's law and obey it joyfully. Do you love God's law? Are you as thankful as the psalmist is when he says, I love your law, I meditate on it day and night. Blessed is the man who does not love the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, sit and see of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's Psalm 1 at the beginning of it. Do you delight in God's law? Let's thank God for his law, a mirror, a restraint, and a guide for us to know how we can live lives pleasing to God. Let's love and not be ashamed of God's law. Number two, let's thank God for the gospel. Thank God for the gospel. Since the law of God was given because of transgressions, it exposes us to our sins and our need for a Savior. So let's be grateful that God sent us a Savior. When we look at the law, we're supposed to say, Lord, save me from my lawbreaking. Save me from my sins. So let's be grateful for the gospel. And let's present that news to a world who has a different understanding of the law than us. Let's let them know that there's freedom in Christ, in the gospel of Jesus. And third, and this one might be a little bit harder, I have a challenge for all of you in light of this. Admonish one another. Admonish one another. When was the last time you lovingly pointed out the sins of another Christian so they could be spared or they could be saved or they could love God more or run from their sins? and slavery. When was the last time you lovingly pointed out sin to a loved one? Now another question for you, for every heart. When was the last time someone else lovingly helped you see your sins? What did God do with the law? The world was full of sin. He gave the law To expose people to their sins and their need for a Savior. When God saw recklessness, lawlessness, pain, suffering, broken homes, struggling marriages, people who treated their children like trash, lying in court. When he saw all that, he gave us the law to wake us up to our need to stop and to run from those sins and to seek the face of our Savior. So will you love others enough to gently point out their sins so that they might be set free? Now, be careful. You need to develop relationships first. Don't go up and say, hi, what's your name? (laughs) I have a sin I think you're guilty of. That's not how you do this. You need to develop relationships before someone will trust you to admonish them. And you need to let your friends who love you know, hey, speak into my life if you see, give people permission, some people permission to admonish you if they see sin patterns in your life. It will set you free. And we can do that because as we learned earlier in Galatians 3, Christ took the curse for the law breakers. So we can now at the foot of the cross be exposed to our own sins without any danger of condemnation, only for healing. So done properly, admonishment points a brother or sister to God's grace and to striving for holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're acting like God. God used the law to expose sins so that people would see their hope in a Savior. May we, as God's people, lovingly and carefully and tactfully admonish one another and receive admonishment from our church family for our good and God's glory. Proverbs 27.6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. People who are never willing to help you grow are your enemies. People who are willing to say hard things to you so that your family or your workplace or your work ethic or your sin struggles can grow by the power of the Holy Spirit, people who are willing to do that are friends. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Amen? I've received wounds of a friend And they have glorified God. And I'm so grateful for friends who would wound me like that. Number one, love God's law. Number two, thank God for the gospel. Number three, admonish one another. Paul's message to the Galatians is, the law was our guardian, our teacher, until Christ came so that people would be justified by faith. And when Christ came, you know what he did? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. He didn't just expose us to our sins and our need for a Savior, but He took our wounds for us on the cross. And He died so that sinners could be saved and redeemed. So that when we read the law and it exposes our sins as a mirror and it would restrain sin so that we can have civil society and when it gives us a guide so that we know how to live lives pleasing to God, the law now doesn't crush us with guilt or shame because Jesus took the guilt and shame and now the law is something we can love because it points us to the one who got on the cross and was wounded so that we could be healed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Jesus, thank you for taking the wounds of the law so that we, lawbreakers, could be saved. Let's pray. Lord, why did you give a law Why are laws useful in a society? Give us your love and your truth as we think about laws that are being discussed right now. Give us grace, patience, love, mercy, and integrity as we represent you in the coming weeks when it comes to your laws about life. But Lord, thank you that as the Apostle Paul said, the law was given because of transgressions. Thank you that your law exposed our hearts to our need for a Savior. And thank you that Jesus died the penalty of the law so that we could be set free. Help us love your law, Lord. Help us love your gospel even more. And give us the courage, like you did with the law, to admonish one another so that our brothers and sisters in your family could find healing and hope and redemption in what Jesus Christ has purchased for them on the cross. Thank you for your law, and thank you for your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?